Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel, and I'm here speaking to author Dan Royals about his new book, To Make the Wounded Whole, The African-American Struggle Against HIV and AIDS. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I wondered if you could begin your interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. So I... I'm an assistant professor of history at Florida International University in Miami, where I have been since 2015. And I got my doctorate in history from Temple University in Philadelphia in 2014. And this project started as um, a research paper for a graduate seminar there. And evolved over time into a dissertation. Uh, and then the the book that has just come out. So I was really lucky, um, you know, at Temple to have great mentors. Uh, my advisor was Beth Bailey. Um, she really pushed me to do historical scholarship that centered human actors. Um, one of the pieces of writing advice that she gave all the time or at least gave to me all the time was to to have people do things. And what she meant by that was to you know put put human human actors at the center of the story, um, you know, all the way down to like the sentence level. So, you know, who who in the sentence is doing the action, make sure that it's a person doing the action. Um, and I hope that that, that focus on you know, people doing things, um, you know, really comes through in the book. Well, it absolutely does, Dan, because as I said to you before we started recording, I, you know, reading this book, you can feel the the struggle, right? That's in the subtitle. Um, yeah. People are doing an awful lot of work. Um, t- maybe if, if, if you could just, let's see, why, why don't you tell us where the title comes from? Mm-hmm. To, to make the wounded whole. Was that in your paper in your initial graduate seminar? It was not. Um, and it actually kind of took me a while to figure out what the title of the book was supposed to be. Uh, the title comes from an African-American spiritual uh, called There is a Bama Gilead. And it's the same spiritual from which one of the groups that I write about later in the book, um, a group called the Bama Gilead, um, which is a group that works with Black churches on um, HIV, AIDS, education, and prevention. Um, that's, it's the same spiritual that they take their title from. The, the spiritual goes, there is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And as I said, the, the title didn't become clear to me until a little bit later on in the project, but what I like about it, um, you know, aside from the reference to this long tradition of, of 
of Black struggle in the United States is that it really pulls together the two key arguments of the book. And that is that African-American AIDS activism was this productive site for the renegotiation of ideas about Black identity and Black community along two kind of axes. Um, one is along the or around the place of queer sexuality, so you know, gay and bisexual men, um, but also people whose sexuality is is understood to be not respectable. Um, so also including in some chapters, you know, single mothers, um, you know, sex workers. Um, so kind of healing the the bonds of community around that set of of traumas. And then on the other hand, renegotiating or rethinking um, the place of Black communities in the United States within the larger context of, of the African diaspora. So in terms of their relationship to people in Africa, as well as to African descended peoples around the world. So that was not in the original paper, <laughs> because I didn't come to that story until later on. The the subject of the paper out of which this all grew was I was taking a, a research seminar on social movements in the 60s and 70s. And I said, hey, can I do can I do the 80s and 90s? Can I can I write about AIDS activism in Philadelphia? And my professor said, sure. And so I went into the archive and started to you know dig for stories. And one of the stories that I found was this story of a group called Babashi, which stands for Blacks Educating Blacks about sexual health issues. And it was, the, Babashi was one of the first Black AIDS service organizations in the United States. They started in 1985, um, which is you know, earlier than I expected to find that kind of work going on. And they emerged out of what then to me was a news story I would later find was, was fairly typical in, in places around the country where you had an initial response to the epidemic from predominantly white gay organizations that had grown out of, um, you know, what was effectively a segregated white gay community in Philadelphia. And so when we began to see disproportionate numbers of, you know, new AIDS cases among, um, you know, African-Americans, People in the community, people in, you know, Philadelphia's black community, including black gay men, um, and their allies pushed back against what was really the silence of, you know, those kind of first line organizations, um, around the issue of race in the epidemic. And so Babashi grew out of that kind of struggle or conflict within the Philadelphia AIDS community. And, um, you know, another thing that I should say about the Babashi story or about Babashi is that it was started by a woman named Rashida Hassan. Today, she's Rashida Abdul-Kabir. Then she was Rashida Hassan. But Rashida Hassan um, was an infectious disease nurse in uh, Einstein uh, Hospital in the Germantown, which is a, um African-American part, uh, predominantly Black part of Philadelphia. <clears throat> and she was an infectious disease, infectious disease nurse uh, who's also Muslim. And she, you know, wears a, a, a niqab, a, a headscarf. And just like this story about this 
black Muslim nurse wearing a headscarf, being a fierce advocate for people with AIDS in 1985, exploded so many ideas that I had unconsciously about what AIDS activism looks like, what an AIDS activist looks like, and what the story of AIDS activism in this country is, that even though it was, it was just part of you know, this, this paper, um, that became the kernel for the first chapter of the dissertation, which became the first chapter for the book, and really the kernel for, for the whole project, because I, I, I kind of thought that if there was this story in Philadelphia that shattered so many assumptions that I had that I didn't even know that I had about this bigger history, then probably there were lots of stories like that around the country. And as I did a little bit more research, I found that, in fact, there were. And so, you know, those other stories became the other chapters in the book. Because I think, you know, the what most people would there assume what i i would would might have assumed before reading your book is that um is yes that the the story about um aids activism is mainly set in san francisco or in new york city um and the fact that you're seeing this kind of organizing as you said so relatively early um into the epidemic is um is is really, um, really, uh, really fascinating. And so it's, it's neat to hear that that came sort of right out of an archival discovery that you had. Um, then it, as you were kind of um, crafting your, you know, so, so you make this discovery and then you're, um, you're kind of putting together how the story you tell fits into sort of the larger narratives um, around AIDS activism. How, I guess, what historiographies do you see the book um, contributing to? Well, there's the, the historiography just on AIDS and AIDS activism in the U.S., which is, I guess, and as historiographies go, it's a pretty young or new uh, historiography. But, you know, one in which the question of specifically African-American organizing has been really understudied. Um, there is one kind of landmark book called The Boundaries of Blackness, uh, which is by Kathy Cohen, who's a political scientist. And that book, got, book came out in, I think, 1999. And kind of the, the, the thrust of the book is about explaining why there is not more of a response or there is not, you know, the kind of response that we saw in the civil rights movement to you know, injustices around segregation and voting rights. Um, and so really, you know, Cohen's book is in part about explaining why groups like the, the Urban League or the NAACP were not on the front lines of the response to AIDS. And that is, you know, that is a question that's worth asking. And, and you know, part of the answer that she arrives at is that it really turns on, um, you know, this idea of respectability. And because the epidemic initially, um, you know, was seen in people who were understood to be outside of respectability. So, you know, gay and bisexual men, um, sex workers, people who, you know, were using drugs, um, that, that kind of put it off the table 
for groups like the NAACP, the Urban League, Black Churches um, as well, to formulate anything like the kind of civil rights response. And, you know, where I'm kind of fitting into that is, you know, it, it's not to, you know, dismiss or overturn anything that, that Cohen wrote, but to shift perspective more to the grassroots, um, you know, from the national level to see what groups like the Bashi were doing in Philadelphia, like the Bama Gilead was doing um, initially in New York and, and later on elsewhere. Um, but to look, you know, kind of at a, at a different scale of activity to see a much larger set of stories. And, you know, ultimately I'm kind of in conversation with this idea that, um, you know, that there's something about AIDS that speaks to the boundaries of blackness. And, and, you know, my argument is that really AIDS activists renegotiated those boundaries, um, you know, maybe more than they were um, stymied by them. So there's the, there's the AIDS, AIDS and AIDS activism historiography. You know, there's a historiography about black health activism uh, in this country where we get into, you know, the, the, uh, movement to integrate hospitals, um, you know, public health campaigns, um, and then a whole literature about black internationalism, um, you know, that has become much more developed, I think, in, in recent years, where some of the work that these groups end up doing internationally is really, you know, building on or of a piece with a, a long history of engagement of African-Americans with other parts of the di diaspora and with peoples in Africa. So kind of like, you know, working in, in, in these historiographies, um, you know, all at once or, or kind of bringing them into the same frame. So, yeah, so there are, um, there are seven stories, seven chapters that the book, um, to taken together, provide um, you what you call a composite portrait of a larger movement um, of, of African-American AIDS activism. How did you select those seven stories to tell? I guess one you found in graduate, the graduate school seminar. Um, but how did you, how did you select to choose these seven to focus on? And then what different facets of African-American AIDS activism um, does each one illuminate? Because they, they are they're, um It's not the same story told seven times with different names, right? <laughs> there, are, right. there are seven distinct stories. Yeah. So I do want to emphasize that this is a, this is that, as you said, a composite portrait. Uh, it is seven stories. These are not the only seven stories that you could tell about African-American AIDS activism. And so, you know, this book is a book about African-American AIDS activism and not the book about African-American AIDS activism. Um, you know, I want to be really clear about that. I picked them to speak to, because together they speak to, you know, the, the variety and creativity of approaches within this larger this larger phenomenon of African-American AIDS activism. The first three I, I put together because they illuminate kind of different ways of thinking about the relationship between uh, gayness and blackness. So that's the Babashi story where you see Rashida and 
you know, other leaders within Babashi, makes this argument that in order to make any headway in the uh, Black AIDS epidemic in Philadelphia, that they really need to canvas the entire Black community. Even as, you know, we see that Black gay men are the most affected, um, you know, their, their argument is that those men, because of the, you know, the historic formation of racism um, in the U.S. And, in, and locally in Philadelphia, that they really need to, uh, or that those men are Black first and gay second. So in order to reach them, you need to go to the black community. There is no black gay community um, in the way that there's like, or there's no black gay neighborhood in Philadelphia and the, in the way that there was, you know, what they still in Philadelphia called the gayborhood, um, which was a kind of normatively tacitly white space. So there's that kind of argument. And then with the second chapter, with a group called the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention, um, they take a, a different approach, which is making the argument that um, their response really needs to be formulated around what they intentionally name as a category of gay men of color, because their work is about formulating a response uh, or, you know, formulating programs for black gay and bisexual men uh, around AIDS education and prevention, but also kind of extrapolating from that work to provide assistance and resource sharing to um, groups for Hispanic uh, gay men, Asian American gay men, and Native American gay men as well. So they work in this kind of interesting, um, you know, consortium of gay men of color to articulate or to, to uh, create programs at the local level while still, you know, attending to the, the specificity that each of those groups kind of needs in terms of, um, you know, education or, or messaging. And then in the third chapter, we get to a group called Gay Men of African Descent, which takes a really a more Afrocentric approach to um, AIDS education, kind of fitting that within the larger project of attending to Black gay men's self-esteem. So they are kind of... Um, articulating a model of black gay identity that takes those two things as equally important, mutually constitutive um, as a holistic black gay identity that is really specifically black in a way that, you know, we don't so much see with the national task force. Although, you know, I want to make clear that like these are not mutually exclusive approaches, um, but they are fairly distinct from one another when we, when we read them against each other. Um, the, the fourth chapter is one about the, the Nation of Islam and their campaign to get a clinical trial for a drug called Kemron, which was purported to have been discovered in, Ke in Kenya as a um, specifically and uniquely African treatment for AIDS uh, in, in, in some formulations of the argument by the Nation of Islam as a specifically, as a, a treatment that is specifically effective for Black people. Um, so that chapter engages um, the bigger story of conspiracy thinking, of, you know, kind of medical mistrust in 
in black communities, which is a really important story in the larger picture of AIDS history. Um, and then uh, the fifth chapter turns to the bombing Gilead, which is the chapter about um, black church responses to AIDS. Chapter six uh, gets into the story of uh, ACT UP Philadelphia, which in the late 90s and early 2000s um, really kind of reoriented its work to be around the, the local needs of the African-American community in Philadelphia as the epidemic was, um, you know, was settling into the poorest um, and least, least enfranchised uh, parts of the city, which is the, the poor black neighborhoods in the city. Um, and so they, that, that chapter kind of looks at two campaigns that they um, pursued, one to stop the privatization of Medicaid in Pennsylvania, and then to um, make generic AIDS drugs available um, in the global south and specifically in South Africa. Um, and I, I write about those two as kind of part of the same project of resisting um, the neoliberalization of healthcare. And then the last chapter is uh, about a group called Sister Love in Atlanta, um, which takes an explicitly and self-consciously intersectional approach to um, HIV and AIDS education and prevention for Black women, both in the U.S. South and in South Africa. So um, as they say, in both the South within the North, um, which is, you know, the, the South within the global North and then in the global South as well. So, you know, I, I wanted these stories to be geographically diverse, to, you know, look at the range of approaches that I saw in the archive to attend to AIDS education prevention among different, you know, subsections of black communities within the United States, um, you know, to put together this, this picture of a larger movement. And one of the things that kind of emerged that I, I, I really thought was interesting was that in each of these stories, I saw people, I saw, I saw actors from other stories pop up. So, you know, for example, Rashida pops up in the chapter about the Nation of Islam. Um, you know, Dazon Dixon Diallo, who was the founder of Sister Love, was on the board of, of one of the key groups that Act at Philadelphia was allied with. Pernessa Steele, who um, founded the bombing Gilead, was at one point involved with gay men of African descent. Reggie Williams, who started the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention, was friends with Rashida Hassan. Um, and she shared with me at one point a really touching letter that he wrote her um, not long before he died about their relationship and, you know, what, what their friendship had meant to him. So I, I really like that aspect of the project and that, you know, it became clear to me that these aren't disconnected stories. Um, they're obviously part of the same bigger story but there are also all these threads that, that weave them together in a way that is, is really interesting.
Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, it suggests, like you said, that the, that these stories are part of a, a larger movement. Were there mm-hmm. any threads that you just like didn't weren't able to, to pick up? Were there any stories that you maybe wished you had been able to include, but couldn't because we only get so much space in our first scholarly monograph or because, oh, you know, the archival evidence wasn't there or I don't know, any anything that you would like to see more research done on? Kind of in general, I think that we need more research on groups in the South and in the Midwest. Um, you know, so there's no chapter that's in Detroit or Chicago or St. Louis, and maybe there should be. Um, you know, also there's a chapter, you know, set primarily in Atlanta, but I think we could use more work on AIDS, AIDS activism, African American AIDS activism in the U.S. South. So, you know, those are kind of two big categories of stories that I'd like to see more of. Um, you know, but there, there are lots of like little kind of, um, side narratives that, that I ultimately couldn't include. There's one that I really, um, think is interesting and it's about, uh, an activist from South Africa named Simon Nicoli, who was imprisoned as an anti-apartheid activist in the eighties, but was also, uh, a gay man, uh, an a black African gay man and was HIV positive. And he went on this tour of the United States in the late eighties, early nineties of groups like the national task force on AIDS prevention and gay men of African descent and was kind of celebrated by them, received by them, formed relationships with the men in those groups and others. And I think it speaks to, you know, the diasporic part of the story to those groups engagement with um, with other activists, other black gay activists from, you know, from Africa and other parts of the global South. And yeah, I just couldn't bring that story into this one, into the book um, in a way that was kind of satisfying, but, you know, I would like to see more work done on that. Um, you know, I'm, I may, try to do an article or something on, on Simon Nicoli and, um, you know, one of the other South African activists that, that these groups kind of forge ties with, but yeah, but, you know, uh, unfortunately not everything, not everything can make it into the book. We only have so much, so much time and space, um, you know, but, but throughout, I tried to leave threads or leave kind of starting point for others to pick up on because yeah, as you said, you, you just, you just can't, you can't pursue everything if only we could. Um, but I hope that others will like pick it up and, and keep going with it. Oh, there, there are, um, there are, are many, many other books, um, you know, um, sort of hidden in, in your book, I think. Um, I, Let's let's see if we can talk a little bit about sort of each each of these stories um, in in some more detail. Um, so um, so you mentioned gay men of African descent, mm-hmm. the National Tax Task Force on AIDS Prevention, um, and and you kind of con- contrast a little bit the the philosophies or approaches of of these organizations, especially as you were just talking about, kind of in relation to 
um, issues of, of multiculturalism or, or, you know, diaspora. Um, could you, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So kind of the, the key distinction here is that like national task force on AIDS prevention takes a multicultural approach and gay of African descent takes an Afrocentric approach. That is, you know, to kind of simplify what I see is the key differences in, in their, in their approach. And for the national task force, I think it comes out of two things. One is that the national task force on AIDS prevention starts as a project of a national group called the National Association of Black and White Men Together. And that is a group that formed in 1980 as a kind of social space for black and white gay men who wanted to socialize together. They get into some political activity, you know, combating racism in, in local gay neighborhoods, um, in protesting, uh, you know, South African leaders when they come to the United States. Um, but it's primarily probably a, a, a social group um, before they form the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention. So kind of already that group is coming from uh, an interracial context. And then the National Task Force, once it gets off the ground, because they get a significant amount of CDC funding in the late 80s, becomes headquartered in San Francisco, which is, you know, more than say Philadelphia, probably um, a multicultural city where you have a significant Asian American population, you have a significant uh, Hispanic or Latino population, um, as well as the African American population that you have in San Francisco and across the Bay um, in, in Oakland and Richmond. So, you know, I think that really shaped the, the approach that the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention took, in part because locally, it made more sense for them to ally with Hispanic, Asian American, and, and American Indian groups to compete for funding than it did for them to compete directly with those groups for funding. So there's an issue of, hey, we can pool talent and resources and capacity in order to you know, build something that will work for all of us. And there are things that we can learn from each other in, in the sense that we are all working in a context that is, you know, normatively, if not explicitly, white supremacist, uh, or, you know, that, that cent centers the needs and experiences of the white population. So, um, you know, their approach of, of looking at the epidemic in gay men of color as an intentional category, I think came out of that context. Um, contrast that with gay men of African descent, which is working in New York City, and is, although they do kind of flirt at one point in the late 80s or early 90s with a more multi multicultural approach, um, their approach becomes more Afrocentric over time. And it's pretty explicitly Afrocentric from the start. I mean, they are gay men of African descent. So their, um, their kind of overall philosophy is that there is, is that black gay men live in a society that is both racist 
and homophobic and as such need a, a positive, holistic black gay identity um, in order to heal from those things. And so they are, you know, looking not only at the kind of racism that black gay men experience in predominantly white gay communities. So the same kind of thing that Babashi was combating in Philadelphia, which is really endemic across the country, even in putatively, you know, progressive cities like New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles or what have you. Um, but they're also responding to voices in, uh, voices in the black community, uh, Afrocentric voices in the black community who are making explicit arguments around the same time that blackness and gayness are uh, mutually exclusive. So these are, you know, thinkers like Malati Asante, Francis Cliff Welsing, um, you know, even some kind of popular, popular figures like Eddie Murphy, um, you know, who are making these arguments that black gay men have no place in black America. And so that's part of what GMAD is responding to as they are, you know, doing not just the kind of AIDS education or prevention that we might think of, you know, condom promotion, um, you know, talking about testing, talking about treatments, but also presenting historical examples of, of powerful Black gay men like Bayard Rustin, Langston Hughes, um, but also looking to African tradition for positive examples of, um, you know, Black gay or we might more accurately say same-sex loving, same-sex desiring men. Um, those two terms, same-sex loving, same-sex desiring, are ones that you see come up uh, quite a bit in, in writing by, you know, Black gay men from the time. And so they are, you know, kind of using their programming to construct this positive, holistic, black gay identity as, as, a, as an explicit means toward healing black gay men in a way that they argue will, you know, have these kind of cascading ripple effects for how black gay men, you know, value themselves. And so, you know, what kinds of sex they're going to have, how they're going to protect themselves, um, when they're having sex or, you know, using drugs or, or anything like that. So they are focused on, you know, this holistic sense of identity, but also this holistic program of HIV and AIDS prevention. And so they get into all kinds of interesting programs. Um, but the one, one of the, one of those that I thought was really interesting was a program called Lifestyles Genesis, which was a, um, a program that they worked on with the Black Leadership Coalition on AIDS that was all built around Kwanzaa principles. So there's like the seven principles of Kwanzaa structure this um, AIDS education program for Black gay men, which is, I just thought so interesting and not something that I expected to find mm -hmm. in the archive. Um, but you see them kind of over time working more and more in that vein. You see more kind of Afrocentric um, iconography, terminology come into their programming. You see that also with, you know, the parts of the National Task Force, but you see it, I think, more with GMAD. And so I wanted those 
two stories to kind of stand together to show, you know, two fairly divergent approaches that I think also invite us to think about, you know, the changing politics of race in an increasingly diverse country. Because in the 1980s, 1990s, you know, we're 20, 25, 30 years after immigration reform um, in 1965, the Hart-Teller Act. And, you know, so, so we are moving from a model of Black-white race relations to a much more multicultural, um, diverse country. And I think you see in these stories, people are grappling with that in the context of this crisis. And I think they're interesting also in that way or for that reason, um, you know, to see what people kind of do with that on the ground, work out, you know, the meaning of diversity, the meaning of multiculturalism, um, you know, as it's changing. And we'll get to the whole, like, you know, usable past sort of right. question at the end. But yeah. I, but I certainly, as I was reading your book, um, saw all, all sorts of instances of um, of things that were applicable to today. And I, you know, like just the the in the description of how GMAD um, wove history into their health education um, efforts, and I mean, certainly. For those of us who teach in, you know, health professions or or aspiring health profession students today, um, are are finding like are finding history of medicine to be more more relevant than ever. So, um, uh, anyway, I I thought that was totally really fascinating. Another fascinating story that it could probably be a Netflix miniseries or something is um, this this Cameron story. So. Um, so I want you to, to tell us what it is, but also tell us why you have kind of a counterintuitive conclusion, which is that it's that its appeal, far from being a kind of sideshow to the fight against AIDS, this is what you write, speaks to the close connection between AIDS and Black America and much older wounds that have yet to be made whole. So why why don't you tell the Cameron story as a Netflix sideshow, you know, to the fight against AIDS? Yeah. So I want to start by saying this is this is the first chapter that I wrote uh, of the dissertation. It was the first thing that I did, um, and it was one that I did not expect to find. I this chapter started as one about needle exchange and conspiracy theory and over the course of a weekend of research became the story about Cameron. So Cameron was uh, a treatment for AIDS that was announced in, I think it was 1990, maybe it was 1989. Um, but you know, around that time of, uh, it was announced by a doctor in Kenya, and he claimed that, it was 1989, he claimed that he had given this treatment to patients in his clinic and that they had shown remarkable improvement um, on their AIDS symptoms and that some had even converted from HIV positive to HIV negative. In 1989, there is effectively one treatment for AIDS in the United States. It is AZT, which is extremely toxic. And so this is like, I mean, this is a landmark announcement if it's true um the the makeup of the drug was 
um, a low dose of alpha interferon taken orally. Um, and doctors had, had experimented with using interferon to treat HIV or to treat AIDS, had not been successful. Um, so, you know, there was, there was kind of quite a lot of doubt uh, around this announcement, but it got picked up by the Black press in the United States, who saw in the silence of the international press and the, the you know, the, the mainstream press in the United States, um, you know, saw a kind of conspiracy of silence in that. And so they took up the mantle of, you know, promoting awareness of Cameron in the U.S. Um, and about a year or two into it, the Nation of Islam became involved. Um, they sent emissaries to Kenya to, you know, check out the situation. Um, and they ended up getting the um, distribution rights to the drug in the United States. Now, the story that the doctor told and that they told about Cameron um, is one that is like Cameron is a drug that was, you know, produced in Kenya by African scientists, um, you know, to in, in, in the tradition of kind of holistic, natural African healing. And the reality, it turns out, <laughs> is that is, is a bit more complicated. So um, it seems, and it's, it's a little bit hard to say definitively, that the initial research was done by uh, a doctor in Dallas um, who published about it in one of the, one of the medical journals um, and may have even kind of used uh, the, the hospital in Kenya as um, a, a clinical trial site or a trial site for, for this treatment in order to kind of get around uh, ethical regulations in the United States. Um, that's all a little bit murky from the sources. But what we do know is that the Nation of Islam really took up the mantle of promoting Cameron in the United States, in which they had a, an economic interest by 1992, and you know, sent people around the country to talk up Cameron and, and promote the idea that it was a specific, uh, a treatment that would specifically be effective for people of African descent and that it was being ignored for any of a variety of reasons. Um, you know, because, uh, the white establishment did, you know, could not believe that African scientists could come up with, you know, this miraculous discovery. Um, or because of the vested economic interest in, you know, the existing pharmaceuticals, you know, for any of these reasons. Um, and they do finally succeed in getting approval for a clinical trial right around the time that a bunch of other studies come out and, and basically show that it's just totally ineffective. Um, and it limps along for, for a couple of years, um, before we get highly active antiretroviral drugs. Um, you know, that really change the landscape of, of HIV and AIDS treatment. Um, and so it becomes a little bit of a moot point. Um, but what the story, what is important about the story is just how successful the Nation of Islam is in promoting Cameron. It's, it's clear that they are tapping into, you know, a deep-seated mistrust of, medical authorities in black communities 
in the United States, and not just in the United States, I should say, but, but elsewhere, but, you know, specifically they're working in the United States. Um, and so, you know, that is, um, that is part of, you know, the larger history of black health activism in this country. It's, it's, you know, if you want to kind of wrap it up into, um, you know, a single, a single anecdote, it's, you know, think about Tuskegee. Um, you know, this is fresh in the minds, really, of people when AIDS hit in the 80s. You know, Tuskegee was revealed, I think, in 1976. Um, you know, so this is really fresh in the minds, but it's, it's not just Tuskegee. It's the long history of, you know, unethical medical experimentation, of medical abuse, of medical neglect. And so, you know, the Cameron story has a lot to say about that mistrust. It's really, you know, kind of illustrative of that mistrust. And taking that mistrust seriously means taking the Cameron story seriously because it does shape the way that Black communities respond to HIV and AIDS. It has all kinds of implications for, you know, whether people, you know, trust their doctors, uh, whether people trust the treatments that they are prescribed. Um, so, you know, it's important for that reason, but it also helps us to tell what I think is a more complex story of, of AIDS that includes groups like the Nation of Islam, which, that are, you know, to say the very least, complicated, um, you know, because at the same time that the Nation of Islam is promoting this drug, you know, they're not really moderating their, their rhetoric about homosexuality. So, you know, but they, they still have a place, a place in the story. So, you know, it, right. it, I so, think it, it means telling a more complicated story. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, faith-based um, yeah. responses to, to the AIDS crisis, especially in the, in the Black community. Um, th- this was... Um, uh, a maybe um, challenging coalition to build. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, tell us a little bit about the organizations who managed to, to work with African-American clergy um, and, and forge faith, faith-based responses. Yeah. The one that I primarily write about is called the Bombing Gilead. Um, and they started in New York in the late 1980s as the Harlem Week of Prayer for the Healing of AIDS. And the woman who started it is a woman named Pernessa Seal. She's still the, the CEO of uh, the Bomb and Gilead. And she grew up, had a, you know, a, a pretty religious upbringing in South Carolina before uh, going to Atlanta for, for college and then, you know, ending up in New York and at Harlem Hospital. And you know, being from a religious background and seeing people who were dying of AIDS in Harlem Hospital, um, you know, asked herself, well, where's the church in this? And the church was not ignorant of AIDS as a problem, right? Um, you know, the, the, the pastors, the ministers, they're the ones who are conducting funerals. Um, you know, they oversee the, the choirs and the music departments where you know, a lot of black gay men found a home in the church. And so they're not ignorant of the problem. 
there's a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe more than a little bit of a reluctance to address it because it does, you know, fall outside those boundaries of, of respectability, but also an uncertainty with how to address it. And so Pernessa Seal was able to, you know, build a local coalition of folks to respond um, and also to provide them with a kind of roadmap for how to do that. And, um, you know, that initial Harlem Week of Prayer was really religiously diverse, um, you know, included uh, Christians and Muslims, um, Ethiopian Jews, um, you know, some, I think there was like a Yoruba shaman there, you know, lots of different kind of um, Black faith traditions represented. Their work ended up being, I think, you know, mostly with Black Christian churches. And so what Pernessa Seal with her kind of personal expertise with the church was able to provide was, you know, a set of, of resources that churches could use in their response. So, you know, one of the, the texts that I look at in that chapter is a book called, um, who will break the silence? And it's one that the, the Bama Gilead put out in the mid 90s. And it's this set of scriptural and liturgical resources that you know, pulls out specific Bible passages that can you know, ground a, a, a sermon or a service and looks to those for kind of lessons or models for, um, for love, for forgiveness, for compassion, for a community that can be a starting point for a church to talk about AIDS within the congregation or with the congregation. So, um, you know, she was able to do that. Bama Gilead, as time went on, you know, became increasingly international in its work in the early 2000s. They took on uh, a faith-based HIV AIDS initiative with five African countries that involved, you know, going to those countries, building partnerships with churches and, you know, in some of the countries, um, mosques as well. So Christian and Muslim leaders, you know, building, building relationships, uh, building coalitions that could respond to AIDS, the, the AIDS crisis within those countries. Um, you know, some of, some of those partnerships, uh, lasted. The Bama Gilead today still has, um, a second headquarters in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Um, and some of them did not. And what I thought was interesting is that this project is explicitly founded on the idea in, in Pernessa Seal's words that Black people do Black church all over the world. There's this sense that there is something essential about the Black faith experience that would allow the Bama Gilead to take what they have learned in Harlem and in black communities in the United States and transport that or deploy that in, you know, these different countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And I think that work founders a little bit in, in the on the ground reality that, you know, the, the, that things look different in, in the United States versus in Cote d'Ivoire or Tanzania or, um, you know, any of the other countries that they're working in. But the idea itself, I think, is really 
is really interesting and is part of, you know, this kind of renegotiation of what that relationship exactly looks like. Right. So um, the the final story that you tell is about Sister Love, which is an mm-hmm. Atlanta-based organization. Um, and it uses a, this organization uses an intersectional approach that um, kind of brings together a lot of the themes or the threads um, from the other organizations that you write about earlier in the book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how Sister Love sort of relates to some of the organizations that came before it? Yeah, I like, I, I wanted to end with the Sister Love chapter because it really runs alongside kind of all of the others. Um, Daisy Dixon Diallo is the founder and she became active in not so much the, the AIDS activist movement, but the reproductive justice movement um, in the early 1980s. And by the early 1990s, by the late late 80s was doing, um, you know, AIDS prevention work with black women, but kind of, you know, what it means to do intersectional AIDS prevention with black women is, you know, kind of in the same way that, that GMAD was thinking about the, the holistic experience of the holistic identity of black gay men, Sister Love thinks about you know, the holistic experience of Black women and, and healing all of the traumas that come with that. Specifically in their programming, it's healing the traumas around, um, you know, Black women's experience with sexuality, whether that's sexual violence, whether that is, um, you know, involuntary, um, involuntary sterilization, whether that is, you know, all of the demonization and negative stereotypes that are attached to Black women's sexuality, you know, that's really a key piece of it. Um, but they also attend to all of these other experiences. So Black women's experience with poverty, one of their programs they started pretty early on was a, a, a housing program for women living with, for Black women living with HIV, um, you know, to help women who were coming out of prison or who, you know, were um, living in public housing, um, who were homeless, um, helping them to get back on their feet so that they could, you know, get more stable in their lives. That, you know, that, that entails thinking about all of the myriad challenges that are facing those women, uh, challenges, you know, that, that surround gender and race and class, like all at the same time. So that's a key piece of their work. Then they, like the Bauman Gilead, uh, you know, kind of become increasingly international and in their focus over time. And so uh, Sister Love moves into work in South Africa in the late 90s, early 2000s, right around the same time that the Bauman Gilead does. Um, but as they do that, the group is really thinking in an intentional way about what the intersectionality of region and nation means in the context of this work. So, you know, if, if intersectionality gives us a framework for thinking about power at the intersections of different identities, then what does it mean for Sister Love as a Black women's group in the United States 
to try to do that work in the, the global South and South Africa as well. It means thinking about what the power gradient looks like for them as a global North organization, even if they are, you know, in, in the South, the South is in the North in so many ways, you know, they are a global North organization working in the global South. So what does that mean? And thinking about how to mitigate that, those power differentials. And they, you know, succeed to a degree. Um, the work is always complicated. And sometimes it's, it's kind of thwarted by people, by the people that they're working with on the ground. Um, you know, but it really anchors the work that they do. And so, you know, Dezan and, and the Women and Sister Love um, is, um, they are kind of working in the same intellectual tradition tradition that GMAT is, um, because GMAT is also drawing from the, the work of Black feminists like Barbara Smith and Cheryl Clark and Audre Lorde. Um, you know, they're working within that same tradition and they're doing work that in some ways looks similar to the other groups. So as Bombing Gilead becomes increasingly international, as Act of Philadelphia becomes increasingly international, um, you know, as other groups that I write about in, in different ways are engaging with either people or groups in Africa or other parts of the, the diaspora, you know, they're doing the same kind of thing and they're bringing that intersectional lens to it. So this brings us to this usable past question. So I usually, I, you know, I like towards the end of interviews, I like to ask, you know, how, if, if I'm talking to someone who's written about anything relevant to history of medicine, how the history relates to contemporary problems, but but actually with your book, um, you know, to make the wounded whole brings us all the way up to the present. So you, you end in the present moment. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about how the conclusion of the book, I mean, you conclude the history that you tell, but at the same time, um, you are calling your readers to, to take action and to look forward. So um, how, what, what is the message at the end of the book? The, the conclusion was really challenging to write um, because how do, you, how do you write the ending to a story that's still ongoing? And so what I, what I ended up doing in the conclusion um, you know, was writing about some of the challenges that we still face. And you know, one of the challenges that I had not necessarily anticipated, um, you know, when I was kind of in the middle of this project was that we could face the possibility of taking such a big step backward as we seem to be about to do in 2017, when it looked like the, the Affordable Care Act was going to be overturned. And I was, um, you know, very fortunate in, in that time to, be able to engage in direct action with some of the very people that I had had written about and talked to in the course of writing this book. Um, you know, we we all kind of got connected in the wake of the 2016 election and began organizing. I mean, I, I should say I was not uh, one of the key organizers of this. I was being organized by some of the people I had written about. And 
but you know the the people who were the most active in the summer of 2017 occupying congressional offices protesting in in washington dc and and leading up to that um you know challenging congress people at their town halls not to repeal the affordable care act and making clear what the cost of that would be those were AIDS activists, those are people who were trained by AIDS activists. And, you know, they include people like um, Wahida Shabazz, like Jose DeMarco, um, like uh, Paul Davis, who are all folks that I write about in the book. So, um, you know, and, and, and we won. We kept the Affordable Care Act from, from being repealed. And, and I really do believe that absent the groundswell of popular pressure of people putting their bodies on the line, of people taking up space, um, of people, you know, disrupting the status quo that, that we would not have the Affordable Care Act today. Um, at the same time, the Affordable Care Act did not go far enough to, um, you know, combat the, the glaring health inequities that we have in this country in terms of, you know, both access to healthcare and in terms of the health outcomes that we see. So, you know, we need to go much farther toward guaranteeing access to quality healthcare for everybody in this country. It should be a given. It should not be something that is contingent upon your class or your race or your employment or where you were born. So that's one thing. Um, where I kind of take that in the conclusion is to, you know, another existential threat, which is climate change. Because what we see in, 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 in the context of rising seas, of a warming planet, of increasingly devastating natural disasters is that as with AIDS, those things are not affecting everybody equally. Those things are affecting those who have the least, the most. And so that's you know, I, I think we, but I think we can take what we know from trying to fight AIDS as a global pandemic to the fight against climate change by, you know, centering the needs, the experiences, the voices of those who have been and are disfranchised, disempowered, silenced. So, that is the conclusion that I wrote um, and, you know, signed off on copy edits on, I want to say in January or February of this year, this is in 2020. Had I, had I written the conclusion just a few months later, it probably would have looked different um, because <laughs> what I did not see was that we were going to be, when this book came out, in the midst of another global pandemic. But I think that if you read, you know, when you read the book, I hope that it's not hard to extrapolate lessons from the book to the fight against COVID. Because if you are familiar with this history, then nothing about the way that um, COVID has unfolded in terms of those race and class disparities in the United States should be surprising. It is in some ways a depressingly familiar story because once again, 
the people who have the least are affected the most in terms of infection rates, in terms of death rates. I mean, across the board, the COVID ultimately like AIDS is an index for how dispossessed, disenfranchised, disempowered um, a person or a community is in their society. And so it, it just goes to show us once again that um, you know the consequences of of inequality are are is, is death. Like the, the these pandemics seep into the cracks in our society and show us exactly what is wrong. And we are seeing exactly what is wrong in so many ways right now. And I hope that what we can take from this is a recognition that not only is a better is a better, more just, more equitable society possible, but it's so necessary if we want to live. Dan, it is very clear at the end of your book that there's a lot more um, work to be done and we have taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us um, before we go, what are you working on next? So I'm taking a little bit of a shift with the next project um, away from AIDS history, um, although I will continue to work in the field. Um, But my next book project is going to be... um, a social and intellectual and cultural biography of a writer named Claude Brown, who um, wrote an autobiographical novel called Manchild in the Promised Land in 1965. And it's a book that I first encountered when I was teaching uh, African American history in, I taught African American security in a medium, African American history in a medium security prison in New Jersey when I was in grad school. And it, I came into the to teaching this class where I took it over at the last minute. I, so somebody else had picked the books and they were already ordered and they'd already been assigned. So I you know, was kind of stuck reading this book, Man, Child, and the Promised Land with the guys in the class. And I thought it was really interesting. It is, it is in many ways a fascinating book. It is this kind of, um, this is going to sound really pretentious, but it's a, a picaresque Bildungsroman of growing up in Harlem in the wake of the Great Migration in the 40s and 50s. And so the main character is named Sonny, and he encounters all of these like fascinating characters in Harlem as he's moving out of you know a variety of correctional institutions um, because he's you know involved in in youth gangs, he's involved in the drug trade. Um, he is, you know, living out the, the failure of the dream of the promised land that his parents came to Harlem from the South, um, in search of. And so I, I thought it was really interesting for that reason, the guys in the class, you know, many of whom had grown up in, um, you know, in Camden, New Jersey, or, you know, in, in Trenton or Newark, um, you know, in, in very kind of poor under-resourced, um, communities responded to it for what they saw as like its authenticity. Um, you know, one of them said something to the effect of, you know, whoever wrote this is exactly what it's like to grow up in the ghetto. And so I thought that, you know, the kind of the ways that we responded to it differently were really interesting. And it got me 
kind of thinking more about the book, its significance, Claude Brown's life, and where it fits into the bigger story of um, the rise of mass incarceration in this country, because this book comes out right at the time that, you know, cities are exploding in rebellion. It's at the height of the civil rights movement, um, but also in the midst of a growing black power movement. And the ways that the book speaks to that and then continues to speak to, to the urban crisis throughout the 70s and 80s, um, you know, with the war on drugs, with concerns about gang violence and, you know, quote unquote, super predators, um, ab about which Claude Brown remains a kind of pundit, a public intellectual, even though he doesn't really publish another successful book for the rest of his life. Um, I thought that story was really interesting and, and needed to be uncovered. So the challenge is that Claude Brown left no papers that anybody can locate. So um, I'm, I'm thinking through the problem of how to write the story of this man's life and influence with a dearth of direct sources. Um, and so that's the problem that I'm grappling with right now. Um, you know, whether I'm gonna have to um, return of Martin Laguerre, uh, the story a little bit, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a biography that kind of uses this um, autobiographical novel, um, which I which I think is kind of like an epic hustler's tale, um, as the starting point to talk about, you know, uh, you know the the story of the Great Migration of uh, of Harlem of policing and incarceration of all these other things. So I'm really at the beginning of that project. <laughs> so we'll have to It sounds fascinating though. Um, uh, I, I, well, I could keep talking to you, but um, we, we're out of time. Um, so I want to thank you again for, for joining us today and, and telling us all about To Make the Wounded Whole and your pro writing process. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 